Hello and welcome to Infection Prevention in Conversation. This week's episode was recorded live at Fis Hiss International in London earlier this year. Our three guests present work on how environmental factors impact infection control practice. My name's Gemma Windsor. I'm a consultant microbiologist with UK HSA in the Birmingham Laboratory and at University Hospitals Birmingham. And I'm also the Editor-in-Chief of Infection Prevention in Practice, the Gold Open Access Journal of the Healthcare Infection Society. Today, uh, along with my colleague, he's going to introduce himself in a second. We are privileged and really lucky. Thanks, everyone, for joining us to have some authors with us of some of our top papers that have been published in our journals over the last 12 to 14 months. So the way the session is going to run, it's going to be quite informal. And I should also say that we're recording it for one of our podcasts. So if you feel brave and inspired to ask a question to one of our authors at the end, you're kind of voluntarily agreeing to be recorded for our podcast. So please introduce yourself before you ask the question. So the way the format's going to run is that we're giving each of our authors five minutes. They're going to come and do an abbreviated presentation of the paper that we selected. And then Nick and I, we've abbreviated and discussed some discussion points. So Nick and I will then be discussing the papers with the authors and asking them to maybe tease out some of the nice parts from the papers and then after all three authors have spoken and we've had the discussions we're going to throw the floor open to you guys to ask questions to all of the authors and that will be via our roving mic so thanks again for joining us and I'll I'll let Nick introduce himself. Uh, Thanks Gemma Um, my name is Nick Mahida I'm a consultant microbiologist in Nottingham and I'm the incoming editor-in-chief for the Journal of Hospital Infection um so in terms of um, today, we've got three great speakers. So our first speaker is Christine, Dr. Christine Peters, uh, who's the clinical lead for microbiology at the Queen Elizabeth um, Hospital in Glasgow. Um, and um, Christine's worked in a number of settings across, across the globe, um, but has a specialist interest in infection control, the built environment, and water safety. Thanks very much. I'm delighted to be invited to speak. I'm I'm the second author on this paper. The first author is my colleague who is lead infection control doctor, Teresa Inkster. And also the other authors are Ian Lawrenson and Louise Seeger from the Mycobacterium Reference Lab in Edinburgh. And they did a lot of the work for this. And Ian Holden did the clever bioinformatics. So if there's any technical questions, I may have to refer you on to them. For this paper, it's a a classic infection control scenario where ostensibly it's about two really interesting clinical cases that you think might be linked. And you see it as a thread. And then you start pulling and pulling and pulling. Before you know it, you've undone granny's knitting. And there's a whole lot of stuff behind these two interesting cases. This paper happens very much in the inner context. There's a separate paper that I'll refer, refer you to and send you links on in which we describe a massive Uh, water contamination and uh, infection outbreak uh, that happened in a new building. It was built into, opened in 2015, and uh, we describe multimicrobial, uh, many different organisms. We're talking Brevindomonas, Cuprivadis, Fingomonas, different kinds of Pseudomonas, all the monuses that you've never heard of before. And one of the cases happened in the middle of that scenario. A lot of work was done and described um, about this water system. Now, you can imagine that if you have a 14-floor hospital next to a 3-floor hospital, we have pediatrics and adults all connected via the water, and every single pipe in that system, you'd start to think of it as a monster because of the biofilm. When you think of the diversity, think of the different organisms throughout the many, many hundreds of miles of piping throughout the system. 
and then you put this into context, trying to tease out typing and uh, timing. What, what does it all mean in that specific context? Um, I just put those photos up there because I had been involved in looking at the taps, and you can see different components of the taps were pretty well covered in sticky biofilmy type organisms. So I've just got two pictures from the paper. They're both phylogenetic trees. We're all very used to looking at these. And in and of themselves, they don't really mean a heck of a lot, do they? They're just like relationships of genomes. They don't mean anything until you start to think about location and time. And that's the critical thing here. So I've highlighted two patients. So we have two clinical scenarios. They're linked in person because they're both hemonc, pediatric patients. They're linked in place because they're being treated at our center. Time-wise, a year apart. So you wouldn't naturally immediately think of an outbreak scenario. But because we have this context, the second patient within a year, we looked specifically for this organism. Mycobacterium chelone is a rapidly growing mycobacterium, very closely related to abscesses. I'd already done some work in the hospital because we had abscesses in our CF um, cohort, and we'd already worked with um, Matt Holden to look at genome sequencing and to find links. And so I'd been trying to find it in the environment. Like lots of other centers, it's actually quite difficult to grow, and I'd been using RGM media, and that's one of the plates up there. The turquoisey number at the top is actually from a showerhead a year before the first case. And then when the, the second case happens, um, similar in linked in place time and not time in person, we get a whole lot of water samples done. So it's pre-flush, post-flush, associated with the locations, specific locations where both patients had been. So theatres, wards, um, and the, yes, yeah, so the two wards, the so three locations, and also water tanks to see if it was a widespread contamination problem. 146 samples were processed. We are very fortunate in Glasgow to have a lab that processes water sampling for Legionella, and they use the same methodology with filtration onto Middlebrook agar. 46% of those samples were positive for M. Chelone, 50% of which were over 100 colony-forming units per 100 ml. Heavy levels of contamination, and this is post a whole lot of intervention in the water system. So there had already been chlorine dioxide biocide system installed. There'd already been implementation of point-of-care filters. There'd already been work on shower and tap and decontamination. So this is, despite all of this, a second case occurring. So the patients are separated in time. The environmental samples and all the, the ones in blue are water samples, pre and post flush. And they're not separated in time. And you can see that the first set of analysis has aligned this with a reference stream. And that it broke up into two clades, about 3,800 SNPs apart. One patient, patient two, settled very nicely into clade one. The second patient at the top, which is actually called patient one, it was about 2,000 SNPs out. But for me, what's interesting is that these are not separated in time, and yet you've got a diversity of 3,800 SNPs. If one of those samples in the top clade had not come from the same taps, you would say it's not linked. So it immediately raises questions around the diversity within a water system. Do we even understand? Well, we don't. For Mycobacterium chelone, we don't have a mutation rate, similar to abscesses a, a few years ago. 
and interpreting this whole genome sequencing in that context, time and place and the additional epidemiological and clinical information. And this is the second one, so we looked more closely, and this is a different analysis where it was an, um, aligned to the patient to um, genome, taken out the recombination, so this is core SNP comparisons, um, and you can see that actually the patient sits very closely to the TAPS. Now, this patient was in at the time that the water samples were taken, so if you like, we got the opportunity to virtually prove that this was most likely to be from the water system. We did conclude, and you can see the, the wording's very careful, and I think you find this with a whole lot of whole genome sequencing interpretation. Nobody ever says, yes, that is a link, do they? There's a high probability, it nests with, it's closely related to it, maybe, which I find quite amusing, because with the old pulse field, which isn't so discriminatory, we'd say, yeah, that's a link, we've got it. Whereas now with whole genome sequencing, we're all a bit probabilities and maybes and... So for this, um, I'd be interested in what people think about the comparisons and what the conclusions you can draw. To also draw your attention to the fact that we got 68 positive samples, but we only whole genome sequence 31. What if we put in the other 31? Where would they sit? We don't know. How often do you keep sampling from a water system to see if you've got the full range of diversity? And this applies not just for Chelone, but for a whole lot of other organisms. So I'm going to stop at that. Um, it was just, it's a very simple paper, really. Two patients, water samples, good matching, and that's about it. So I'm very happy to answer any questions. Uh, thank you very much, Dr. Peters, for that. Um, I just had a couple of questions which you uh, sort of thinking about. So 46% of the samples were positive mm -hmm. for Mycobacterium chelonia, which seems like, an enormous amount of positive results, although I can honestly say we've never sampled our hospital for Mycobacterium chelonia. You might get the same result. Do you have a feeling as to, or a view, or any data that you've seen around if you did go sampling lots of hospitals for Mycobacterium chelonia, would you find it in TAPS and systems? Generally, you do find it if you look hard enough. I mean, it is, it, but what was striking here was the level of contamination, so high levels. So there are reports from other outbreaks where people have found it in the hospital water, usually triggered by a case. And this is part of the issue here is what, what, what does it mean? We know it's in the water. We know it's like some organisms, Pseudomonas, Denitrophomonas, you get uh, cases, your first thought is going to be something watery, some sort of water environment. And then if you get the epidemiology that matches that, so an increase in cases, that's the most likely explanation for it. And so just because you grow it in the supermarket as well, doesn't mean that that's relevant to your patient who's having those procedures done in that place and time. So the, the numbers did reduce over time. And the other factor with this one was the chlorine dioxide system probably selected out for the mycobacterium because they're more resistant. So it just gives it that additional um, advantage. We didn't get it from the tank, so it does seem to be further down in the system, possibly because of more oxygen or um, various other factors there. But it did manage to get an advantage. And what we found was that there wasn't so much diversity. So when I first took the taps apart, a lot of diversity, lots of different organisms, but by the end of a year of um, chlorine dioxide treatments, you're down to fungi, the very resistant organisms, and chelone. So yeah, I mean, we don't know, do we? It's resource intensive, so who's going to whole genome sequence thousands and thousands and thousands? Because from infection control jobbing point of view, it's a watery organism, 
you've got patients getting things done to them yeah. in that setting? Have you got all your control measures in place? Yeah. Do you need to absolutely prove the whole genome sequence event? That's a fair point. Thank you. Um, thank you very much, Dr. Peters. Um, and um, I'll hand over to Gemma. Next up is Dr. Katie Prescott, and I'll tell you a little bit about her. She completed her microbiology training at Nottingham University Hospitals in 2021. During her training, she took an active role in the Royal College of Pathologists as a microbiology training representative for both the Combined Infection Training Specialty Advisory Committee and the Medical Microbiology and Virology College. In 2019, she was awarded the Graham Ailiff Training Fellowship by HISS, enabling her to take an additional year to train as an infection control doctor and take on the role of trainee editor for the Journal of Hospital Infection and IPIP, and we were very grateful to have her during that year. Katie's now a consultant microbiologist at NUH, where she is a lead microbiologist for paediatric liaison and the infection control doctor for Queen's Medical Centre, and she remains on the international editorial board for IPIP. So thank you very much, Katie, for agreeing to this today. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Um, so hopefully over the next five minutes, I'm going to uh, succinctly summarise an outbreak of New Delhi metallobetalactamase, carbapenemase producing enterobacterales um, that we had on our bone marrow transplant unit um, and discuss the role of the environment that we think um, the part that played in our, in our outbreak. On the slide, this is showing the ward layout of our bone marrow transplant unit. Uh, it's an 18-bedded uh, unit. Each room is a single um, side room with ensuite facilities. Uh, they are positively pressured with HEPA filtered air um, and each room has either its own lobby or a shared lobby. Uh, the kitchen, which plays quite an important role in this outbreak, is at the top left of the slide as you look at it. Um, the rooms highlighted in purple were the rooms our affected cases were in um, and ultimately, as you can see, they are in sort of different corners of the ward. This slide shows a cropped timeline of our outbreak. Um, there were four cases affected over a two-month period. Uh, the green line represents the patient's inpatient stay. The grey boxes represent any negative CPE screens that each case had. And the purple boxes represent the first positive uh, CPE sample that we had for each patient. So because meropenem was used as an empiric antibiotic on our unit for neutropenic sepsis, we did actually have routine CPE screening already in place. Um, that was in the form of a rectal swab or a stool sample, and it was meant to take place on admission for each patient and then weekly thereafter. So you can see patient A was the first patient to be detected. Uh, with happy um, that they are the index case. That's because patient B and C actually weren't admitted at the time that patient A was positive. And as you can see, patient D actually had multiple negative samples um, after patient A was detected. So patient A, uh, how they acquired CPE, we can't be 100% certain. Um, they actually had a negative screen on day three of their admission, and it was on day 10 of their admission that they were subsequently positive. Once we knew about patient A, um, they had appropriate infection control precautions put in place. However, something happened that 43 days later, we then had three subsequent cases over a 13-day period. Three of those for patient A, B, and D, they were um, enterobacter cloacae with the NDM, and pulse field gel electrophoresis showed that those isolates were identical. Patient C, however, had an E. coli with an NDM. We assume that that is the same NDM that was in the uh, enterobacter cloacae, but we couldn't prove it. We assume that happened via horizontal transfer. 
So once we knew about these cases, we declared an outbreak. Uh, we did a retrospective review to see if we'd had any other cases on the unit, which we hadn't. Um, we did prospective case finding by increasing our CPE screening to two to three times a week for each patient. Uh, we didn't find any more cases. We reviewed the case notes of all the cases to see if there are any commonalities. Uh, obviously, we increased cleaning uh, and we did some environmental sampling as well. So this slide shows the environmental samples that we took and the results of them. Because each of the four cases were colonized in their GI tract, uh, we suspected that there may have been a fecal route of transmission, and that led us to sample the ward kitchen. Uh, and as you can see from the slide, the, there were some positive results from the kitchen. Those were from the draining board, uh, the seal around the sink and the top of the bin and the food counter. Uh, and we felt that those positive results supported our, our theory. The other positive samples were from uh, patient A's toilet and shower drain and from the ward sluice. Now, we don't think that was the source of the outbreak. We suspect that was just due to environmental shedding from the patient and the method with which, obviously, the waste was um, disposed of. So... Our hypothesis of events was essentially that patient A had bad graft-versus-host disease and bad diarrhea as a result of that, and we suspect that led to a high environmental contamination of, of CPE. On review of ward kitchen practices after we had these positive results, we, we found that patient A's relatives were actually going in and out of the ward kitchen, uh, which wasn't meant to be the case. There were also some lapses in infection control practices from healthcare workers in terms of um, dealing with meal trays, uh, from infected patients and hand hygiene. Uh, and we suspect that this was the, the route with which the CPE from patient A got into the kitchen. Uh, and then unfortunately, due to these lapses in IPC, it then resulted in spread to three other patients. So once we knew about this, we obviously instigated control measures. Um, so we stopped visitors using the ward kitchen. Uh, we improved the IPC practices uh, and increased cleaning. Uh, and following that, we had no further cases. Uh, we also removed the seal around the sink because um, that was uh, very difficult to clean. We cleaned it and then replaced it. And after that, the environmental samples remained negative. So that sort of concludes the outbreak. And essentially, unfortunately, one of the patients did end up with a CPE bacteremia, but fortunately, all of them were well enough to be discharged. Thanks for that, Katie. So um, have you ever had an issue preceding this with NDM in other, other parts of your trust at all? So we'd seen a few cases. Um, there were two sporadic cases on different wards at our other hospital site, not at the site this outbreak occurred, and that was in 2016. And then in 2017, the year that this outbreak occurred, there were two linked cases on a respiratory ward, uh, which is in a different location to the bone marrow transplant unit. Um, similar situation in the fact that the index case for that outbreak actually had bad diarrhea again and unfortunately they'd been placed in a positive pressure room by mistake and that we think led to high environmental contamination and unfortunately it did then result in um, another patient acquiring the CPE but we don't see a lot of CPE in our trust. Given that there was a 42 day intermission if you will between patient A and patient B how do you ensure that links between cases aren't missed I mean, you have to have quite a lot of vigilance, don't you, especially if you're seeing horizontal transfer of mobile genetic elements between enterobacters going to E. coli. How do you, what mechanism of surveillance do you have to ensure that on an ongoing basis those aren't missed? And I think it's, it's difficult to be prescriptive because obviously every lab and hospital is going to be, to be different. I mean, certainly in, in Nottingham, we don't see much CPE, particularly back in 2017 when this outbreak occurred. So I suppose for us, that made it easier to spot. I think really the key going forward is going to be ongoing um, CPE surveillance so that you can try and pick up these cross-transmission events. I mean, certainly 
with this outbreak, it was challenging because all that was available to us at the time was the pulse field gel electrophoresis. So we could show that the Enterobacter API isolates were the same, but we couldn't show that the NDM that was found in the E. coli was the same. We just had to assume that it was. Um, I don't know whether going forward, whether whole genome sequencing um, of the plasmid would be able to answer that question and make horizontal transfer easier to pick up. I don't know, again, whether in future, because obviously at the minute we wait for a period of increased incidence before we start trying to sequence things, and obviously there's a time lag with that. I don't know in the future whether we're going to be able to sequence, and sequence every isolate as we go along, and obviously that will make the cross-transmission events much easier to pick up, and we'll be able to act on them a lot faster. And um, you said that your empiric choice for neutropenic sepsis had been meropenem. Did you ever consider changing that as the cases um, accumulated, and if so, what did you change it to? So... Obviously, it was, um, we did think about it, but we didn't actually change it um, because we were screening so regularly, we were happy we were going to pick up um, the cases relatively quickly. Um, we had an agreement with our haematologist that any patient that wasn't responding to first-line antibiotics would be discussed with us early. Um, and for the cases that were affected, obviously, we had the antibiogram, so they all had their own empirical plan. Obviously, back in 2017, that was slightly more challenging because we didn't have some of the novel agents that we have now. Um, but yeah, we, did, we didn't change and last question, you can see from the detail of the paper that there's an issue with compliance of people sending screens and that obviously hampered your early investigation of knowing possibly when transmission events could have occurred. Yep. Um, I think that's a problem that we all face and I was just wondering if you had, having gone through this, any advice or any ways that you were able to help the team to improve their compliance with sending screens? It's a challenge we all face, isn't it? I think sporadic audits that we do show our compliance is anywhere between 70 to 80 percent. Um, and you see that pick up during an outbreak because it's at the forefront of everyone's minds, but obviously it then it tends to drop off. I think, in, in fairness to the haematology colleagues, there was the issue that they didn't want to send rectal swabs in patients that were neutropenic. Um, so they were waiting for stool samples to be sent. And obviously, we all know the challenges of trying to get stool samples from patients. Um, in terms of improving compliance, in Nottingham we have IPC link nurses, um, so they're a good way of trying to improve compliance. Um, but I think also feedback to teams in terms of performance is probably one of the best ways to do it. Thank you very much. That was great, thanks. So our final speaker um, for this session is um, Dr. Peter Knevey, um, who um, <coughs> is from Trinity College Dublin and is currently a research fellow. Um, at Trinity College Dublin, um, having done a PhD and a, a BA previously from there. Peter's research interests are focusing on utilising whole genome sequencing, um, and he's been working um, on Staphylococcus aureus, uh, MRSA and uh, MSSA, um, and um, looking at sort of cross-transmission from hospital and community sources. Um, and um, one of Peter's main interests is in uh, developing sort of user-friendly whole genome sequencing pipelines for application um, in nosocomial infections. So I'll hand over to Peter. I appreciate the opportunity to, to present our research and share and discuss, discuss it here. So thank you very much for that. Uh, apologies, I did change the title of my talk slightly just to include MRSA. Just for the larger context, it's easy to explain the, the project. But we went into nine wards of uh, a large acute hospital in Dublin under non-outbreak conditions uh, over a two-year period as well. And we collected samples from healthcare workers, consenting patients, and the environments. The environment would include near-patient environments around the bed, frame, mattress, lockers. And the extended environments that frequently touched hand sites around the extended ward. And we did air sampling as well. And uh, so we had some prevalence data. 
So we recruited 326 healthcare workers and 388 patients. 6.4% uh, of patients had MRSA and 3.7% uh, of healthcare workers uh, harbored MRSA. Uh, just under a quarter of patients harbored MSSA and just under a third of healthcare workers. A major finding of the study was the oral cavity was a, was a significant reservoir of staph aureus, and I'll be talking a bit about that again towards the end of the talk. Uh, so we took one isolate per person or site, as long as it had a unique antimicrobial resistant gram profile, and we sequenced them to look at relatedness between isolates. And we'll focus on the MRSA first for a bit. Uh, so we got 110 out of 155 MRSA isolates recovered were sequenced, and using in silico MLST analysis, we were able to... Uh, assigned them to nine clonal complexes, and then 79 of these isolates using core genom MLST was uh, assigned to 17 related isolate groups. So these related isolate groups meant that all isolates as part of a group shared less than uh, uh, 24 core genom MLST differences. These are the same strains, basically. And 19 out of these 17 uh, related isolate groups, I'll call these rigs going forward, were associated with person-to-person -person transmission, and also they were... Uh, associated with three different uh, clonal complexes out of the nine that were identified, the majority of which were part of the SC22 MRSA4H clone, which is the endemic uh, clone in Irish hospitals. I'm going to go through a few of these examples now very quickly, just to give you an idea of the, the isolates involved. The RIG1, which was the largest RIG of the study, uh, was SC22 MRSA. There were four clinical uh, isolates included, uh, so the patient infections weren't happening. There were eight, uh, six healthcare worker carriers, six patient carriers from six different wards around the hospital. And uh, over this was over a large period of time as well. Uh, and there was a number of uh, environmental uh, contamination as well. The next RIG was RIG4. This was three different patients. One of them was a clinical infection different three different wards over a year as well. There's a chance uh, that a healthcare worker might have been missing the study here just because of the duration, we'd say. Uh, RIG 14 was SD22 MRSA, a healthcare worker, a patient, and a, third, a second patient, three different wards, and some environmental contamination here as well. So you, the healthcare worker here is uh, implicated. Uh, RIG 17, again, two healthcare workers in the same ward, uh, within a couple of weeks of each other, were shedding into different wards as well, two different wards. Uh, so we'll move along to the MSSS side of the project now. This was all done in parallel at the same time period. 635 MSSA isolates were recovered, 406 of these were sequenced, and 183 of these were grouped into 59 related groups of isolates. So just a reminder, that means that there are less than 24 core genom MST uh, uh, differences. They're the same strain. Uh, out of these 59 rigs, there was 26 of them harbor, uh, were associated with transmission events, so person-to-person -person transmission. Uh, the first figure in the, the paper shows how diverse these were, especially in comparison to MRSA. The 59 rigs were associated with seven clonal complexes, and there's a lot outside these clonal complexes as well, so a lot of diversity. The timeline for these uh, rigs is also the second figure in the paper. It's very There's a lot going on in this figure. I'm not going to go into this. I'm going to pull out a few examples, and we'll talk them through. So RIG11 was the largest RIG in the study. There was one patient, a, PNO, a nasal carrier, PNO1043, uh, shedding quite a lot into its immediate environment in the same ward. There was a lot of air samples. There was a lot of immediate uh, patient near surroundings in the same ward, so other patients in the ward were being put at risk. Uh, notably, there was a clinical ISIS uh, recovered several months later as well in a different ward as well. So again, there might be a healthcare worker here that we missed. RIG21 included four isolates. The healthcare worker here is implicated. There's 
it's, it was found after a, an environmental isolate several months before a patient uh, carrier and then uh, a clinical isolate was found quite a bit of time later as well and again in several different ways. RIG25, a CC398 MSSA, uh, a patient isolate and a helper isolate in the same ward and they were shedding, uh, there was shedding of the strain into the environment and again the patient infection isolate recovered about seven, eight months later. Uh, this is the last one here, RIG45, CC45 MSSA, a patient shedding into its uh, immediate environment and a healthcare worker was recovered, uh, isolate was recovered uh, a couple of weeks later, a different word. Uh, so I have a couple of slides going through conclusions now. So uh, a significant portion of the healthcare workers and patients uh, were found to harbour MRSA and or, like, or MSSA or with only oral carriage, without nasal carriage, or a nasal and oral carriage. So if you're decolonizing uh, uh, healthcare workers, say, just for nasal carriage, you're going to miss a, a lot of the picture. This is going to lead downstream to more um, recolonization as well. So that's a, a, big, a big thing to consider. Uh, a lot of the isolates were implicated in transmission events, a lot of the isolates from every source. So you can see a lot of healthcare worker isolates were uh, implicated in MSSA rigs, 19 transmission events, 31 isolates. Uh, there was clinical uh, isolates being recovered. Environmental contamination was found. Actually, we found a lot of heavy shedders as well, healthcare workers and patients as well. Persistent carriage was identified. Uh, one healthcare worker was positive for MRSA over several time points. Uh, a lot of other transient healthcare worker carriers were implicated. For MSSA, 21 healthcare workers uh, were uh, identified. Half of these had the same strain, same clone over multiple phases or multiple time points, and the other half, 11 of them, were lost and requiring a different MSSA clone. So we have loss of one clone and, re and uh, pick up of another clone. So this is the final conclusion slide. So uh, whole genome sequencing was pivotal for this study. It allowed us to do a lot. I've just after describing a very dynamic situation in a hospital and a very complicated one, and but it has to be taken into consideration for IPC policy making decisions going forward. Uh, thanks very much. Uh, thank you very much, Dr. Nevi. I, ju I just had a few questions just from having um, read the paper. So in terms of sort of the um, transmission events, do you think um, that the patients or the staff or the healthcare workers contributed most to cross-transmission? Because I guess healthcare workers are moving around a lot. Patients are relatively yeah. in one place. Um, and then I guess linked to that was which one contributed more to environmental contamination, patients or staff? From your, from yeah. your studies, so, so the, going by a lot of the timeline point we did, uh, you'd, we'd see a lot of healthcare worker carriers uh, identified. So we did the sampling and we found recovered an isolate before the patient's isolate was recovered and you have some persistent healthcare worker carriers as well. So I would say the healthcare worker carriers, they're more of a danger to the patients going forward and you have to be very patient-centric. So I think, uh, the, I think the healthcare workers are probably the more um, responsible for transmission events in the hospital. Uh, in terms of shedding into the environment, um, uh, we found a lot of shedding from both healthcare workers and patients. I think they're both responsible. The environmental side of things as well, it was kind of a snapshot. Mm -hmm. We were The sampling was done over a, a certain time period and we might get in and do environment sampling during this sampling. So mm -hmm. it is very much a snapshot of what was going on. So you mm -hmm. need a more prolonged study for environmental contamination as well. Thanks. 
And then in terms of just looking at the data, I think from the study, and hopefully I've got that, this is right, um, the healthcare workers at nearly, well, at 30, you know, 37% colonization mm -hmm. rates compared to patients, which are yes. only 24%. So yes. do you think there's something about exposure and the environment that healthcare workers are based yeah. on? Why do you think the discrepancy, think, or do you think it's just the numbers that are small? Yeah, yeah, I saw it's, it's, uh, we can speculate that it's part of the, the work environments. They're, they're obviously subjected to it more, more often. Uh, than the patients would be who are maybe in a bit more transiently, uh, yeah. And then I guess um, I'm going to ask the sort of more controversial question, which is um, so around healthcare workers, and obviously if they're the source of Staphorius, what should we be doing about them? Mm -hmm. Should we be screening healthcare workers? For example, I'm, I'm sure a lot of us have got used to putting, taking, doing nasal swabs for COVID or self-testing, so should mm -hmm. we be testing healthcare workers? And it's always a controversial issue. It, it's the elephant in the room, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I, I think the, the evidence from this research shows that healthcare workers are part of the transmission routes. And if you want to be focused on patient care, you have to be looking at uh, 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 screening every so often for healthcare workers. And I think that short term, it could be a bit of pain. A healthcare worker might have to go away for a few days while they get decolonized. And you have to include the oral, the oral, oral rinses in this as well. Uh, but long term, I think it could be of a massive benefit because you'll, you'll wipe out a, a big part of the transmission cycle for MRSA and MSSA and other organisms as well. Thank you very much. So if anyone has any questions for any of our speakers, please remember to introduce yourself. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, uh, my name is Vicky Katsimi from Harbour Water Management Group. And I have a question to Dr. Peters from uh, Glasgow. Thank you very much for the interesting paper. Um, so Mycobacteria chelonae is very slowly growing. It's chlorine, chlorine dioxide resistant. It takes ages to be diagnosed. It's very difficult. So we all know the stories from the heater cooler uh, um, issues. So and you um, nicely presented about two cases of in in infections. And I would like to know how did you decide to dig into that and look deeper and try to identify the source out of two cases uh, within a year? I don't think that everybody would be doing this, and people mostly don't sample for mycobacteria, to my knowledge. Thanks. That's, that's a very good question. I think it's the context, and also we made the diagnosis of Chiloni, so it's not Chimera, which is the, the one that's at the cuticulus, so Chiloni is very related to abscesses. Um, and we were aware of outbreaks that had already happened. So the minute you get the diagnosis, so one of them came up on a blood culture, in fact, just from an ordinary blood culture, not even a mycobacterium blood culture, on an ordinary plate. So they grow very, very well. Um, partly that's why we could do the water testing, because you can imagine the mycobacterium that aren't so easy to culture. We, we, don't, you know, we don't know a lot of stuff because we can't actually test for it or look for it. So there's a bit of bias there in the sense that we can't. Uh, we had already, there's a, there's a sister paper to this looking at Cuprivadis, and the same happened with that. So you get an unusual organism, and you've got to start looking for a source. So we have the same kind of patients year in, year out for 15 years, and we've never had one. And then you get one, and you're in a hospital which already has a lot of biofilm and problems in it, and we'd already grown it from a shower. So 
it makes it makes sense, and I think that's that's a, the lesson that you look at all these outbreaks. There's a tattoo outbreak in Edinburgh that was described by Ian Morrison as well, not that long ago. So if you get these organisms that are environmental, you go looking based on the epidemiology. So if you've got a few people who've had tattoos, obviously you're going to go into the tattoo artist and start getting all the watery bits. If you have them in a hemonc unit, you look at the obvious place, which is the showers and the taps and the water. So I think we do have a high level of awareness, but that one, if that, what worries me, if that, that whole genome sequencing hadn't got us one match, I think that's quite conclusive. I don't think anybody's going to say they didn't get it from water that case. We could easily have missed it because you can see there's a wide array. So the whole genome sequencing has a strong positive predictor value, but not a good negative predictor value because we don't really know the diversity within the system. So I think that holds true for a lot of these organisms, and it's something that we probably have to to try and tease out. And a lot of outbreaks you read, I think that point is missed. So if you get unique types, it, it doesn't actually mean anything in the context of the epidemiology. So um, I think it's whole genome sequencing informing the epidemiology and where you're going to look, and vice versa, the epidemiology and the clinical history, you know, the, the natural history of the disease, how long does it take exactly, as you say, if it's slow growing as well, how much has it mutated in a patient? So we saw that with abscesses. So over time, they're changing as well. You only take one colony from a plate, have we, if we looked at 40 colonies, what would what diversity is there in there? So I think that's a very good question, but so often it's back to basics, back to what we already know, water. It's a watery organism, go looking. Can I ask one question? How do copper and silver ionisation units fare against NTMs? Pass, I don't know. I think not very well because they aren't... Um, from silver, basically, they are very resistant, but copper-wise, I don't know. I don't know if there's anybody in the audience who would... Suzanne Lee's probably the person on Tim Macon who were involved in investigating these. They would know better, but we don't have those, so I don't know. Any more questions? Okay, well, I think that's time to wrap up the uh, session, Then thanks again to all of our speakers, and thank you all for coming. Thanks for listening. This was the last episode in the current series of Infection Prevention in Conversation. We hope you enjoyed the series and you'll join us again for some more episodes next year. In the meantime, please don't forget to like and subscribe and follow us on Twitter at JHI Editor and at IPIB underscore open.